Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Collecting pensions? No, that's the free rail card. Yeah, we get pensions at 65. Not in Australia. <laughs> oh, hang on, yes you do, but you're not allowed to retire at 65 anymore. You have to wait until you're 75, yeah? Oh boy. Ah, uh, don't worry. As long as you get your pension, if, who cares if you have to retire or not? So, hello everyone, and welcome to episode 58. Now, tonight, uh, today's episode, as we kind of teased in episode 57, we'll start off with a discussion of Bill Murray and his, uh, one of his wonderful quotes about never arguing with stupid people. Then it'll move on to a discussion of why, and the, well, this is one of the biggest arguments you get into with stupid people, whether or not the Chinese, Russians, insert name of nation you feel like are copying everyone, are copying the Americans, Western or whatever, or they're just finding actually similar solutions to the same problems because all the aircraft and ships are starting to look the same. And then finally, we're on to what is possibly one of the most disturbing things I have had to look at in weeks. And I'm talking, this is from the person whose channel is haunted by the Blackburn Blackburn. I'm talking about the Virginia class submarine block V, or the uh, block five, which I'm calling the humpback class. I honestly am calling them the humpback because they have. They could have made it look so much better by just moving the sail around. All they've literally done is a cut and paste and add in. But before we get into that, we will start off with the Bill Murray because I can go <laughs> on about that one for a long time. OK. Oh, dear. Oh dear, so aesthetics, course, aesthetics week, and uh, naval design, hey? It, this week it's me, it's Drak NFL, and it's Jamie Seadell, so it's the regular crew. Yar. <laughs> so, Bill Murray, never argue with stupid people. Hmm. Okay, all right, see you then. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. to be fair, I, I don't think, I think he's using the, the phrase stupid is being used there as a sort of catch. And the actual quote does go, it's hard to win an argument with a smart person, but it's damn near impossible to win an argument with a stupid person. And I think what he's meaning there is the people who, are, he's take, actually a smart person is someone who is arguing with an open mind and who's prepared to listen to the other evidence. And I would say rather than a stupid person, a person with a closed mind, maybe. Because someone who's not prepared to listen to any evidence at all. I mean, it's, like, it's a the fact that it's a submarine a... looks ugly is going to make it more ugly. Because that humpback is going to make noise. Mm. Well, look, so the relevance of this, of course, is, you know, what we do every week, which is argue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. pick, apart, pick apart current issues and, you know, uh, the these uh, various politics and um, bickering around them all. But yeah, you're right. I mean, what is stupid? Well, it's whatever you want it to be, really. I mean, ultimately, it's a massive spectrum that goes from, as you said, um, people that have such a closed mind that um, their, their brains are being starved and shriveled to the size of a peanut, all the way across to the other side of the spectrum where people are so people's minds are so open that their brains fall out. So. It's it's where on that spectrum is the tipping point. And um, personally, I think the tipping point is the point where you no longer accept that you might possibly be wrong. Mm. 
And, uh, you know, it's unfortunately that particular thing, uh, being able to determine whether or not you might possibly be wrong is entirely based on your own personal worldview and experience. And, you know, so, uh, again, it's different for everybody. Um, you know, what is stupid? I mean, you could, you know, I sit here sometimes and bang my head against the table about, quote, unquote, you know, the stupid arguments about how British aircraft carriers in World War II were such crap. But that's not really stupid. That's an argument from ignorance. Mm-hmm. And it's stupid to me because I get tired of having to go through the explanation necessary to alleviate that ignorance. But it's more than just the explanation. You've got to explain it in the right way, um, and, you know, in the right package it in the right manner so that you're not um, offending that person's sense of self. So, it's, you know, as soon as he turns into any remotely like a challenge, um, people's defences will go up and it just becomes a slanging match. Uh, it's just, again, it's human nature. People don't like yeah. having to change their minds. And, um, uh, you know, doing that is not an easy process. It, the only way you can achieve it is by respecting their point of view. And usually, not always, but if you're lucky, once you show them a degree of respect, they will reciprocate with a de- degree of respect, which will then hopefully restore that balance between a closed mind and a completely open mind to one where they can you know, make some sort of um, judgment. But uh, I think part of the problem, and this is how I sort of noticed it, in different formats on social media these days on instagram there tends to be people tend to just go yay love you that sort of thing and it's very almost superficial but it's mostly about pictures mostly about food pictures yeah and i have to say most of what i post on instagram is food pictures usually with my dog looking at them going i want that and me going at me saying no uh occasionally castle pictures and pictures of ships but yeah mostly food pictures then there is Twitter, which you have to be very careful because you will almost always, if you post anything, and you have to be prepared to end up in an argument with people, not about what you did say, but what they interpret the meaning might be behind the meaning behind the meaning of what you actually did say. And, and you sit and there and go... That's also a consequence of the limited... You know, um, presentation size. I mean, yeah. it's nowhere near as bad as it used to be, but, you know, the the posting length isn't exactly enough to provide much context. And, you know, even if you do in subsequent um, thread posts, how often do they actually mm. follow the thread? Not oh, very, often. very well. Yeah. And yeah. I have to say, Dan, you've got, I will just add the final sort of set. This is the final thing I sort of get involved in YouTube. And I have to say, I love that because the YouTube, because it is as long as you want, the YouTube ones, you get one of two. You either get the, why haven't you included this bit in your presentation? <laughs> and I'm sort of going, it was already three hours long. It, you know, <laughs> the, okay, yes, that would have added in another five minutes discussing, a five to ten minutes discussing that. But honestly, if I have that in, then I have to have this and this and this and this, and then it's get up to five hours long. So at a certain point, you have to draw the line somewhere. Mm. Or... And I get this one a fair bit. Um, and this is in 
you should be more like insert other YouTubers name here. Now, the most popular one, of course, is Drac, who I do love. You are uh, one. Uh, you two are probably my best, uh, my best naval history buddies. But honestly, I like being different because that's what makes it work. Because if I do the same as Drac, I'm never going to be as good at Drac as being Drac. <laughs> So I, I do. I do win. have an inherent advantage never, at being drag. To be I, fair, I, I never win that competition on YouTube. So I, 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 I've got. To, I'm just going to be me. It's a lot easier, and I'm actually likely to win at being me because there's who's going to want. Uh, who else is going to want to compete with me and me and you? But then the other ones, they go, "Oh, you should be more like military history visualized," or the other ones, and I sort of go, "I don't have those drawing abilities. I'm sorry. I wish I did." They do amazing things, and there is the one that's the cartoon stuff of the history, and does all these shaped people wandering around and various things. They do amazing stuff. If I had those skills, I would be doing it like the shot, but I don't. So I do what I do, and hopefully do it well. And yeah, I, instead of, that, that is time, you sit there and go, well, if you like that style, go to the person who does it that style. Because <laughs> the reason I'm not doing it that style is probably because I can't do it that way. I think that's extra history that you're talking about. And to be fair, they have an entire team of people doing it. They are amazing. Mil mil military history visualized does it himself, largely does it, I think everything himself. But to be fair, he has a as far as as if I recall correctly, he has a degree in the kind of stuff that allows him to do the visual animations on his channel. And I think this is one of the things I know it's a little bit of a sidetrack from what defines a stupid person, but it is one of the things I do find quite amusing when you do see these kind of you should do this, that or the other, because I sit there and I think to myself, well, hang on a minute. You are aware that, you know, my channel, your channel, in fact, all three of our channels, we're kind of one man bands doing our channels. So for what I do, I'm already a a writer a, a script writer a speaker a researcher a naval historian an archivist um a proof checker a translator um a videographer a sound editor a video editor a computer technician um a field researcher a, um a negotiator um <laughs> Uh, not, to, uh, not to mention not to mention marketing and budgeting yes and something of a librarian at the rate this book collection <laughs> is growing so it's like asking on top of all of that to add computer animation to my skill set sorry but there's only so many hours in the day and i do actually have other things i like doing which which again brings me back to my point yeah it's yeah. A, it's it's stupidity in that instance is an argument from from ignorance mm, yeah they which are I don't, not aware of no. what it takes and they've not put any thought into what it takes it's a so wonderful it's thing to do but i would reckon yeah the average uh, for every hour of youtube which gets out i would reckon the average is about three and a half to four hours of work going to God, i wish and, uh, well yours is even more intensive than ours is because yours you go and find the video edit all the videos together add in the your add in so yours is probably eight to ten hours per hour Sometimes uh, some, yeah. uh, eight to ten hours per half hour. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. I, the advantage for me and Drac is that, to be honest, for most of our for our research, if we want to start off, we literally just turn around behind us, and there's mm. books there, and that's where we start. Oh, and and as as one of the guys who's subscribed to my channel, and I'll give a bit of a shout out. Vintage car history. If you happen Ooh, to want, yes. know the, the, want to know the history of vintage cars, there's there's that channel. Go and have a look yeah. at that. That is um, cool. 
as he as he pointed out, um, I kind We've I lost kind of Jamie also, for the next hour. He's off to the vintage car channel. <laughs> but he 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 does some excellent videos. But as he as he pointed out, I I also have kind of an unintentional cheat going on when it comes to producing my stuff. In that because aside from the live streams, the vast majority of my content is me narrating with pictures and overlay. If I get something wrong or I mess up my wording or whatever i can just go stop recording cut off the last five seconds edit and start again if you're trying to do things to camera yeah. uh, which is mostly what dr clark does and and what he, um what vintage car history does you either have to be very 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 good at reading a script or accept the fact you are going to make slip-ups yeah. or, or just apologize or you have to go back and start from the beginning Again. This, this is this is definitely turning into the video editing yes. um, Sorry, episodes. We've got to wind but, back. <laughs> yeah, but go, going back to what Jamie was saying, I do agree. Yeah, I think an, an argument from ignorance doesn't count as stupidity at all. Unless because, you, you know, stick to it. Yes, well, this is the thing. It's like the three definitions, at least in terms of naval history uh, and related subjects that I have for stupidity is one, um, somebody who... As, as you just said, um, re will refuse to educate themselves. So yeah. if they if they they might get something wrong, and if they get something wrong because they don't know the full details, okay, fine. Ignorance but, is excuse for, yeah. uh, excusable. Willful ignorance is yeah. But in if, a world of the uh, in a world of Google, and I know my colleague academics are going to hate me saying this. Wikipedia. If you have willful ignorance, then it's on you. So, so yeah. So if if you've if you've had the opportunity to correct your misunderstanding and you refuse to do so, and then continue your argument from your your point that is is now you've been told is wrong when you haven't bothered to check it, that is stupid. The second one is, I think, people who make comments and assertions about something without actually having fully considered read listened to etc the thing that they are commenting on um you see this so much i mean uh, even in things like movie reviews but especially in naval history circles and on and to a certain extent on youtube where you see comments like you should have mentioned this or what about this or this proves this and you're sitting there going um either i mentioned this in the video <laughs> Or, you know, I'm sure you found Jamie in an article that you've written yeah. um, or they'll come up with something and say, oh, no, but you, but what? But but like this proves that you're wrong. And you sit there going, I discussed exactly that theory and why I think that theory is not correct about two thirds of the way into the video. So you clearly haven't actually listened to anything I've put out before coming in with some comment trying to assert your own dominance, which, you know, is I would class that as stupid because all it does, to be honest, is make you look. It does make you look stupid in front of everyone else because everyone else who bothered to listen, read, or and whatever is just going to go. Yeah, but that's already in there. Why are you saying? I have to say, I'm naughty of my videos. I always include some extra bonus points past the 30 minute mark because I know a lot of people just watch at maximum the first 30 minutes. So I make sure I have bonus gobbets of information which you will not find pretty much anywhere else other than if you go and read the the massive thick books. So you set, you set up a bits. trap, do you? Uh, basically, no. I consider it sort of uh, <laughs> I consider it sort of treats. If you get past the 30-minute stage in the videos and you're going through them, 
instead mm. of you know because i do the section the chapter thing on the thing so you can click through and uh, you know you can if you want to go away and come back you can come find a space of it again quite easily and it's a case of it's the bonus points of people and the amount of times people comment below and go well you obviously haven't read this book so and so and so and so and i think well, if you'd listened to about the mark forty five, uh, the forty five minute mark, you'd have heard me discuss that book and actually read the section. Classify, I classify <laughs> this kind of stupid, the attention seeking stupid. Yes, where that's what that's what they're actually after. Yeah, and they're looking and, for any argument to get attention, and that's what they're thriving on. So, um, whereas another form of stupid mm. um, is loyalty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, that you. is where, you know, whether it's excessive patriotism or excessive team sport backing or, you know, the the, the old political one-eyed um, flag waving, mm. where if you can't make the facts rationalise with um, your particular st uh, stance, then mm. you browbeat your way through the process and... You know, again, that's that that's it's stupidity in the sense that it's loyalty taken to the extreme. Yeah, and can lead you to some fairly big pitfalls because it usually it's usually coupled with you know as extreme loyalty to one thing, and it's kind of an, an almost an automatic assumption that this side good, therefore other side bad. Exactly. Which. Which, can Which is also the worst thing you can argue in history, because honestly, mm. usually if you're talking, let's say, because I, I get accused of sometimes about tribal class destroyers. And I sit there oh, and why? go, I, 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 I know, but I sit there and go, I always ask this question, do I acknowledge that other class of destroyers were very good? Do I sit there and mm. say that all the other destroyers were bad, the tribals were the only good ones? No, because whilst I love tribal class destroyers and I, I'm very interested in their history and I love... They do have flaws. I admit in my book yeah. they have flaws. Yeah. But and the I feel thing exactly, is, it's exactly the same for me with um, you know the Royal Navy's armoured carriers. Uh, mm -hmm. Why am I so interested in them? Because it took it took a lot of effort for me to find out anything about them. Yeah. And investing so much effort into finding out about them made me you know, e uh, even more interested in them. Does that make me think that they are uh, would have been world beaters if everybody had them? No. Does it make me think that they are um, you know, des deserving of one sentence in, you know, uh, you know uh, a thousand page books. No, because, you know, they had their own merits, yeah. but they also had I, their I, own weaknesses. I, and it, I it, don't know if the multi class had been built, they could well have mm. argued they were world beaters, but the multi class would have been kind of special thing. The other thing <laughs> is that, that that kind of stupidity also leads to actually completely absurdist thinking the minute you take even a single step back. Because and you, you see this again with naval history, you see this across the whole spectrum of things. You see some people going, oh, yes, the British Navy was useless. They're always useless. King George V class, useless. World War One Royal Navy, useless. Fisher, useless. Churchill, useless. OK, maybe Churchill and naval matters. Royal, Royal, than, Navy, so. Royal Navy um, paid no attention to anti-aircraft. Yeah. yeah. Royal and, Navy had no uh, no interest in aircraft, no interest in naval aviation. They were terrible. Yeah. No interest in yes. submarines. Now again, and the, and, uh, I'll say that you know that's because that's been a very well established narrative. Yeah, but it, it, By so idiots. A lot of um, but I know a lot some of people of my have accepted colleagues, it. But yes, idiots. But the thing is, accepted it. Yeah, but the thing is, it's 
it's a very narrow-minded way of looking at things and it's very cl- closed-minded as well because as i say it, the, the reason it it's kind of that kind of position is an absurd point position the minute you take even one step back is you look at it and go okay so apparently this navy did absolutely everything possibly wrong and was completely incompetent and yet somehow was the largest navy on the planet for a century and a half and won at least two world wars or was on the winning side in two world wars depending on how you want to look at it and depending if you count the napoleonic wars as the first world war possibly three um so you you kind of sat there going okay well if they were so bad how did they end up being the top dog for that long which leads to either one of two inferences which is either you know the more logical assumption that they weren't actually that bad so therefore your thinking is absurd or alternatively that everybody else was even worse or there's a third option and this is what the french Mm. sometimes said god was an englishman yeah, but you well, see, you everybody know. claims that. <laughs> but you see, that, that's, that's you, you tell case... me what nation doesn't think that God owns them. So, you know, no, that was the French thought God was an Englishman. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that, that, that just comes on un- again under the terms of being competent because you re- recruit the most powerful ally you can get. so they clearly weren't that incompetent (laughs) they they decided to get the divine on their side but no i mean mean, you see the same thing and the the other part the other part of that thinking is it also weirdly enough you you've got the sort of the people who try and knock down a side consistently because of this loyalty to some some other entity but you also get um you also get people the, sort of the flip side of that is they always talk up their own side which which is equally stupid because um and I've, I've said this in various videos of my own as well you know if you make out the side a which is what you also whether it be the royal navy the u.s navy the various people who think that for some reason the kriegsmarina was the next best thing to wonder weapons or whatever you should um, see the hate mail I'm getting yeah. for having suggested the Austrian Navy actually designed a better class of dreadnought than the equivalent Kriegsmarine at that time. The thing is, it's like if you if you big just, up your no, side, so you you big up side A, and then you massively browbeat and downgrade side B, you're actually fairly directly insulting all the men who and the latter conflicts these days women who gave their lives for the navy that you're trying to you know big up because if if your navy if your side was so awesome and so world crushing and so all dominating couldn't possibly be wrong and the enemy was so cowardly and technologically backwards and completely ineffective well then your navy should have sort of steamrolled that other navy in about four weeks with no casualties and ended the war flying their flag your your flags in the enemy's harbors and then you look at you know world war one or world war two where conflicts last for years and tens of thousands of people die and if you make that kind of absurdist they say argument out of loyalty you're effectively actually saying yeah you know what we had all these massive advantages and the enemy was so pathetic and yet somehow these servicemen managed to get themselves killed doing what should have been the equivalent of punching their way out of a wet paper bag which is actually massively insulting to the the people who 
who who died at, on both sides, but obviously more particularly to those stupid people, the people on their own side. And it really annoys me when I see that with the Falklands War. The amount mm. of times people will start insulting the Argentinians and go, oh, they were all useless, cowards, all these sort of things. They're not. If they were honestly, useless, then the Sheffield wouldn't have sunk. If they were useless, the British would not have had to send the Royal Marines to Paris and the Gurkhas. Let alone the guards units. Uh, you know, sending the guards is something we do. Say, they they end up in every single war, but it's only really nasty wars that we tend to deploy the Royal Marines to Paris and the Gurkhas, and usually it's only one of the three, not all three at the same time. I I, I, I struggle to think other than the Falklands War and parts of World War Two, where you have got all three of them conducting a major operation in the same theatre, let alone working together in the same battle. Yeah, but, but I mean, ultimately, it comes down to you know, people. You know, the definition of a, of character of a person's mm. character is that they have an internal narrative about mm. who they are, what they believe in, what teams they support, you know, um, which flags, colours mm. they like the most, and you know, um, now again, it's a spectrum. So some people are extremely rigid about that. Some people are extremely flimsy about that. But uh, mm. you know, as soon as you start to challenge a a pre-held position, even if it's based on a flimsy position. If you call them stupid, you're automatically going to end up in a stupid situation mm. because by calling someone stupid, you make them stupid and yourself stupid at the same time. This is something that I, as a journalist, have to contend with constantly when I'm having to contend with experts in any field, whether it's academia, you know, uh, think tanks or, you know, sport even, where they are contemptuous of, quote-unquote, having to dumb their subject down so that the general public can understand it. Now, I'm sorry, but you do. most of them do exactly the same thing. The sports people dumb their skills down when they're training the under-16 um, squad. The academics dumb their skills down when they're tra training first-year um, university students. Or we they don't let the professors down. anywhere near first years. That they, we can they, avoid it. They, they dumb it down because dumbing down is what is known in you know, cognitive psychology as scaffolding, which yeah. is providing the bare bones of a, or the structure of an argument or a scenario that's just one level outside of the comprehension of the people you're talking to. So they can reach up and grab that scaffolding and pull themselves up. It's why parents baby talk to children. They usually baby talk to children at about a year's level, speaking level above where that baby is at. It's not dumbing down the English language or whatever language you speak. It's providing a scaffold for that child to climb to attain the full view and the full structure. So, you know, this is this applies also to you know everything from as i said politics through to sport through to naval history so you know in defending you know um in my instance the strengths and merits of a royal navy royal navy's illustrious class aircraft carriers you know it's it, i can't just leap into it and say well you know just just compare hms formidable um with bunker hill you know it, that immediately sets heckles up and People get, you know, um, uptight and upset, naturally, you know, and uh, so, so you've got to break it into it in a, in a slower and simpler way. Okay, well, you take the worst, the worst case of damage to an aircraft carrier of that type, 
when Blastrix was smashed by Stukas. So, oh yeah, it, it, it starts out looking as though it's something that's um, backing up the opponent's point of view, and in some ways it is. But by unwrapping the circumstances and the situation and you know the outcomes, you then provide that scaffolding for your next stage of the argument, which is saying, well, okay, these carriers were sacrificed 25%, 33% of their air group capability in order to stay on the battlefield 30%, 50% more of the time. So, you know, it's you can't just charge in headlong and say, oh, no, you know, the Essexes aren't the, um, you know, aren't the Messiah. They're just very hastily built naughty boys. Hmm. You know, the, um, well, actually, no, they were extremely good ships. They were they very, but, okay, they were, ma- they were mass produced, um, but, but they were, they were mass produced, excellent, flexible designs. And it and reflects the American industrial base because they can they do that. Yep. And they were optimized mm. for their theater and their circumstances. Yeah. So it's again, yeah, it, that could have that, that sort of scenario can either go stupid or educational. Uh, 50% of that outcome is controlled by me, the person who's trying to educate or who's trying to illuminate by the way I respond to the initial stupid. But again, you know, it's there's a spectrum there. There's a point where you've got to say, well, I'm wasting my time. And that usually is where that person refuses to acknowledge that they even the possibility that they're wrong. And that's where I just end or delete or shut down a discussion as being quote unquote stupid. Yeah, that's the thing you have always have to it's the nuance you have to get into that debate. And I always remember just when I do going for my PhD, the amount of arguments I had with, um, let's say, one of the academics involved, not my a supervisor, but one of the other academics I worked with, who couldn't seem to understand that there was nuance in terms of carrier production because nations were making choices based on the level of infrastructure they could bring to bear to support their carriers. For the Americans, an armoured carrier wasn't nearly as useful as being able to mass produce their carriers as quickly as they could because they had them straight on near facilities where they could resupply them. But if you're the British, and this is where I think the Japanese go wrong because they lately, they towards the end get into the idea, but if they're going to cheat, they could have got into this earlier. The British were going for survival because their infrastructure was so far away from where they thought they might be fighting. They thought they might be fighting in the Pacific, in which case they need the ships to be survival because they're going to be a long way from support. Or if they're in the Mediterranean, they're going to be fighting against land-based aircraft, which are very close. So you need the support, you need the protection anyway because you're not going to be able to stop the attacks getting through you're not going to be able to dodge them so that's the british idea and if you were measuring the american carriers by the british criteria they would be terrible because they wouldn't fulfill the british criteria but if you're fulfilling uh, measuring the british carriers by the american criteria they're also terrible because they don't fulfill the american criteria which is the need for those most aircraft you can get for massive battles you plan to wage in the Pacific. But that doesn't mean either side is wrong. And this is the problem you get into them. And this is my definition of stupid when I'm having debate of people is when they have to sum everything down to right or wrong, a binary approach of yes or no. This person, this side is right, so that side must be wrong. 
there is a very real option that both sides can be wrong because neither can fulfill their own strategic requirements and both sides can be right and they fulfill their strategic requirements because look at this today if you're building an aircraft carrier for the u.s navy it's going to look very different to an aircraft to you building an aircraft carrier for south africa if i was building an aircraft carrier for south africa at the moment i would be building a very different type of ship than i'd be building for the u.s navy because south africa hasn't had an aircraft carrier in you know they they need they need to build up you build a different style of ship you'd want to you wouldn't go nuclear powered you go because you don't have the industry to support it all sorts of things would be different you, you would but do that, what that china has it, you would do what yeah. china has done so you, you would scaffold your way up yeah. through the training carriers of Liaoning and, and shandong you go to the next level of you know combat fully combat capable but uh, apart from its catapult system um you know uh fairly tried and tested technology yeah and then they're going to go in, you know hopefully by then they'll have got enough nuclear technicians and and the likes available to run a fleet of nuclear powered and, um, global carriers and i get into trouble with people because people go well i'm being very sound very dismissive of the of the, uh, the chinese carrier force and i go i'm not dismissive i'm just saying they're still developing and training it it's not the threat at the moment because they're still trialing out new air groups they're still trying out designs and what is the thing is more worrying is if you are concentrating on the current one and presuming that's the level of threat it's going to remain you're missing out at the moment it's not much of a threat because they're developing but because they're concentrating on developing so it isn't much of a threat at the moment then going to be a much greater threat far quicker far quickly than we presume and that that kind of brings me on to the my my final definition of stupid when it comes to this kind of stuff which is people who should know better particularly oh. my my personal hobby horse politicians but basically someone who has a degree well, of responsibility well, why, why do you why do you think they should know better oh okay responsibility yeah. oh that yeah. you mean that thing they spend all their time dodging yes well this is the thing is they 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 put themselves in a position where they are theoretically supposed to have a degree of responsibility and a fair degree of responsibility because in theory they're supposed to be guiding the course of you know the nation that elected them they've got and unlike other people who you know you might just debate with generally they have access again in theory to multiple advisors who ha should have the relevant knowledge but uh, sort of the deep historical knowledge and the current knowledge they've got access to all sorts of fun classified data which even obviously we don't have access to and you know they're the ones who are supposed to actually be then making the decisions that will safeguard their country going forward so they have all the tools at their disposal to understand the situation and react in the best possible way and their actions will spill over for obvious reasons to affect okay, Drake, more than just them but Drake, wouldn't they be stupid not accepting that bulging brown paper bag from uh, international arms supplier xyz well this is the problem this is where it comes down to stupidity because it's uh, it's that it's a that particular kind of stupidity to me is a combination of arrogance and short-sightedness because a lot of them are far too arrogant they assume that they know better with, with either without listening to people who actually do know better or they listen to them and then immediately dismiss them and then the short-sightedness of you know personal greed and wanting a nice cushy life for themselves now 
because to be perfectly honest you know if you if you want to go kind of worst case scenario it's all very well saying yes of course i'll take lots of money from uh company xyz now and i'll have several million dollars of or whatever to retire on etc but what good is that money going to do you when you know the the country whose threat you've ignored has taken over and decided actually you know we we don't believe in the, all those nice western values that you're hiding behind like an uninterrupted retirement and not just randomly seizing your property because you're politically inconvenient or putting mm-hmm. you up against the wall yeah yeah or putting you up against the wall because you're 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 a member of of the bourgeoisie elite it's it's like it's in, it's an incredibly short-sighted end to be honest even if okay fair enough some of these politicians are so old they probably will keel off keel over before any of this a, a, any worst case scenario theoretically comes into play but you'd hope they'd at least have a degree of human empathy for at the very least their family who's going to have to live through the consequences of their actions and yet you time and again see politicians and other policy makers and policy influencers making incredibly arrogant, incredibly short-sighted decisions that benefit pretty much no one but themselves and their mates, but will probably end up costing everyone in the nation that they're affecting, including probably long-term themselves and their mates or their families, far, 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 far more than it would be if they actually did something sensible, like listen to somebody who's actually got a degree, a modicum of an understanding of what's actually going on for a change, or, you well, know, so, alternatively... So many issues are decried as being left-wing, right-wing, you know, I'm just butting in here. Which, which, which kicks in the team sport, when you got which kicks like... in the whole team sport thing I was talking about, you know, yeah. that you start blindly waving a flag and bending facts or ignoring facts to suit yeah. your position. But, you know, anyway, like, you saying... I, can make, I can make a very nice argument about the conservative right-wing reasons for supporting the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK. I can go through that quite happily. I can also make the left-wing case. But what I don't understand is why a case would need to be made in the first place, because both sides should agree. And in this country, it's often there's often of market people saying the Conservatives want to get rid of the NHS. They don't. At no point are Conservatives that stupid, uh, we hope. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's the same, uh, th- same thing. But if you go to America and sometimes and one of the problems with the global world, the global social media is you do import the culture wars, to use that horrendous term, from everywhere else. Or rather, you you just pick up the debate that's going on everywhere else and you sit there and go and it filters into your own national debate and you go. I'm sitting there listening to some of the supposedly conservative and i say supposedly conservative because in my view and as a conservative the first thing about being conservative is you want to conserve things you want to conserve the world you want to conserve the the people who are in the world you want to conserve society and resources so that future generations can have it you want to put for you don't believe in no change but you believe in measured change in thought through change and development so that it goes through and supports the world so people can get bored. That's my opinion. That's me. And I'm listening to them going, they're going, I'm a conservative. I'm going, you're not. You're an idiot. <laughs> because if you were a conservative, you put it in the nicest way. Go to what the conservative means. Look up the definition and look at, think about what you're talking about. 
You're destroying so I, think you'll find I think you'll find the definitions different in different dictionaries. And again, yeah. it comes back down to what I was saying. Everything, you know, there's spectrums of everything, and where you are on that spectrum is what you think mm. is the midpoint or normal. And you distort the world to, to suit that point that you believe that you are the midpoint. Mm. Um, but, you know, ultimately, though, how do you deal with stupid? Well... I've got a, I've got a demotivational poster somewhere that says uh, team meetings never underestimate the power of stupid people in large numbers. <laughs> uh, and I mean, this is from I, I suppose you've got three levels on if you've got the level of the individual who just refuses to listen, listen to reason or even consider debate. You know, there's not enough hours in the day. You probably just have to end up ignoring a certain percentage of them. Um, then you've got kind of, I guess, from from a naval history side, you've got potentially other people who are putting about, quote unquote, historical information, academics and such, like basically pe people who could cause l large numbers of other people to believe things that are factually and provably incorrect. And that's not stupid, that's malicious. <clears throat> yes. Well, there there is such a thing as malicious stupidity, but... Um, because of these issues, because they say just being a historian doesn't mean you are necessarily proof to being overly loyal to one side or the other. We we can all think of a few historians who are very well published, very well respected, but occasionally you read an article or a, a book by them on a particular subject that's their pet hobby horse and you start going, oh, yeah, OK, you, you've drunk the Kool-Aid just a little too much on this one. Um, so. Yeah, those. Well, you have been reading the proofs of my book, my teeth, and there, and you know. Do I brew a little bit too much on this one? Yeah, sorry. But that, yeah. those people, you you can you can engage, you can debate, and sort of put up some facts, and hope and hopefully either either they'll see the error of their ways, or at least you've done your level best to provide a counterpoint that people can look at. Um, so that that's kind of the level of where you can engage and then you've got the, the the high level stupidity which is sort of the level of national governments and institutions and such like and at that level well there's precious little you can do in my personal opinion because apart from you know make a few sound judgment calls and prepare yourself and those you care about on with how to best deal with the fallout that you can see coming Guillotines, um, buying an island. Yeah, well, <laughs> not well. That's what, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's the thing. It's it, you know, if, uh, if, a, if a people nice are going to island, if people are going to make these these kind of stupid errors, and they're provably not going to listen to anyone who is could correct them, and they're so narrow-minded and and short-sighted and arrogant that they're going to either. They're either going to run the country or organization or institution that they're in charge of into the ground or they're going to end up with a lot of outcomes that, you know, they don't like. And it'll turn out magically just speaking and making lots of angry speeches about it doesn't actually change objective reality. You just have to prepare for that. So, you know, it, you know, making the best of a bad situation, if if you can see that somebody I mean, it's the, to be honest, in some ways it's. We, even looking at things like, say, um, my employment, my employment history, 
I've left a number of companies and organizations because I've seen that they're in the process of utterly cratering the, the either staff morale or their services in general. There's nothing I can do past a certain point. I mean, I can raise my objections, I can raise my concerns, but ultimately I'm not a chief executive director or whatever, so they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to listen to, to be honest, they don't listen to the vast majority of their workforce. Um, and so at that point, you do the best you can. So you, you you take the paycheck for as long as is tolerable. And then when you think this is too far and they're just going to ruin absolutely everything, you jump ship and you go and find yourself find yourself a better a better place. I mean, it's kind of... Well, it's a form of democracy, isn't it? You, yeah, I mean, it's you vote you with your feet. You, you shift your vote, which is in your vote yeah. in this circumstance is your, is your skills. Yeah, and I, can, I kind of view it in, a, in the same way, kind of like imagine if you were on the Titanic. If you were transported back in time onto the Titanic, you know what's going to happen. Ship hits the iceberg. You know, you do your moral duty of trying to warn everybody and saying, no, really, seriously, this ship is going down. But at some point you have to go right. Get wrapped in the brig. Well, (laughs) uh, I'm thinking pragmatism at some point. Well, in the nicest way, we're quite rich, well-spoken men by that white men of that time. Let's be honest. We probably wouldn't get locked in the brig. We'd probably get given a stiff brandy. But the, th- but the thing is, no, at some point, you know, you take you have to take your pragmatism into account at some point, you know, when the ship's bow is two foot off of going under, you have to go, you know what, blow this for a game of soldiers. I'm getting in a lifeboat. Yeah. Um, and it's the same kind of thing with with that kind of high level, either national or institutional or job based stupidity. There's only so much you can do once you've done enough. You have to start looking out for yourself and and, and make the, the necessary preparations. If that involves spending several hours afloat in a wooden lifeboat in the middle of the Atlantic, then so be it. If that involves just going, you know what, I'm going to arrange my investments or my property location choices or whatever in the way that's going to you know suit the, the future outcome of the world. Well, sorry, but. If, if people refuse to listen, you can only really make the best of a bad situation. Yeah. For me, when it comes to things like, you know, naval history and my reporting, mm. um, I've found the best solution is to assume that I'm the stupid one. Mm. Um, and not just that, uh, but it's also my responsibility to be the stupid one so that my readers don't have to be stupid themselves. So I'll, I'll ask the dumb questions. I'll ask the embarrassing questions. Mm. I'll make the embarrassing um, mistakes, but correct them when I'm corrected. <laughs> mm. um, because you know I, I've had that. I suppose it's fortunate in some ways where I've had to deal with every subject from the local kids' under twelve soccer team through to hypersonic missile thruster research. Um, with everything from astrophysics to um, archaeology in between, not to mention sociology and politics. So, of course, there's no way that I would know enough in all of those fields to make my way, but I'm still expected to present an argument or write a story or at least attempt to translate what's going on into a subject that can be understood by people who have nothing more than a high-level education in that area, you know? Mm. So um, I've, I've become well and truly used to being wrong when it comes to the interview. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, uh, I don't 
I personally don't see anything wrong with being stupid as long mm. as you use it as a process to become not stupid. Yeah, and, um, and th th there's a process of education involved there as well because, I it's, mean... It's, it's, it's a process of ed mm. education, but it's, it's also just a, it's a process of, of respect. Yeah. And a process of... Um, Again, not being so open-minded that your brains fall out because you've got to make value judgments on all of these things. Mm. Is this is this person bullshitting me? Is this person uh, pushing an agenda? Is this person got something something to benefit from? But at the same time, it's well, you you, you listen to them. Um, you give them their opportunity to to voice their position. You attempt to play devil's advocate in a gentle way to that position, and their response will generally tell you whether they are stupid or not. So uh, that, that's the sort of that's the the sort of dance that I play. You know, whether it's on my YouTube comments or whether it's interviewing, it's to um, assume that I'm stupid, assume that they are not, and at the end of the day come to uh, sift through the outcome to some sort of conclusion yeah and i mean it's 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 also it's also there's a, there's a degree there of i would say in some ways artificial stupidity that you can in, induce for a greater cause because i think i i recognize that kind of process in some of the stuff that the i do as well like if i get a if I'm lucky enough to get a guest, a guest speaker for an interview or an interview with on one of my videos, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, I, I'm not going to have the same in-depth level of knowledge on that specialist subject as that person does. Yeah, it's like when I'm into when I was interviewing John Parshall about Midway. Yeah, I know a reasonable amount about Midway. Do I know as much about Midway as John Parshall? Hell no. He's probably forgotten more about Midway than I'll ever know. But you know, but if it was just for me, I could quite easily have an hour, hour plus discussion with him about the very minutest details of Midway, and we'd be both very happy and everything. But as an interview for the viewer, general viewership, they're going to sit there going, "What the heck are these two on about? Uh, is are we even talking plan. about Midway?" Yes. Um, see, so, again, you know, sorry, yeah. I was going to say this is the point I was saying before about scaffolding. Yeah, you know, your that level of discussion that you would have loved to have had mm. is the academic journal level. Yeah, the next level down is the specific interest, such as you know, um, uh, what, what, what would it be? Um, mechanic, uh, you know, mechanical engineering sort of magazines, you know, which are speaking at a an audience of engineers, but not at that ultra-professional, ultra-high technical level. And then you've got down the, the lower level, which is the mass consumption market, which is, you know, about what's the coolest car and why. So you, you've got you, you've got to to know your audience, and you've got to provide the degree of scaffolding and detail that suits that audience, and with as much context in all three as as you can cram in. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, it's it's fine. And, but the thing is, it's at that point, yeah, as you as you say, it's kind of I have to be artificially stupid for that kind of interview. So I yeah. construct a bunch of questions that 
will lead through a narrative. It's a bit more advanced than the basics of Midway. We're not going to go through a timeline. Well, we actually, spoiler alert, we are actually going to do a timeline of Battle Report <laughs> Midway, but that's not the purpose of the interview that I did. Um, and it's a case of, you know, introducing topics that people might have had questions about. Maybe I know some of the answer to it, maybe or not all. Some of the ones even I'm interested in, but it's a kind of a level of someone who's already interested in Midway. They know a reasonable amount about Midway, but they might not know this. Mm. And so I'm asking those questions effectively on behalf of other people who might not know as much as I do. Or maybe mm. there are people who do know more than I do, but they don't know that element. Um and and so yeah there there is a place for artificial and controlled stupidity um, in in society i think and it, and it, it's part of acknowledging where where you sit in the grand scheme of things because as i say it's like when you've got specialists who who have dealt in a particular field ultimately they are very likely to know far more about you in that particular field but equally speaking you know you you might know something much more than them in another field so you like you might find someone who is, and I'm sure there is someone out there who is an absolute specialist in the field of World War One aircraft carriers, such as they are. But their their knowledge might end with HMS Furious and the Washington Treaty. So, if let's say Jamie is interviewing them about it, yeah, they're going to know far more about that subject. But at the same time, you probably know far more about than they do about the illustrious mm -hmm. class and the armored carriers. So. Uh, uh, this is the. I think this sort of loops back to our original and point. Actually, like, I could name that person. He's called Alex Howlett. He's just doing his PhD, or might have just finished it. I think actually from memory. And yes, I will arrange an interview if you want to with him. All right, <laughs> there you go. Bring him on uh, board. Yeah. So, but this is the thing. It, this is called, loops back around to the fact that ignorance is not stupidity. Yeah. yeah because uh, uh, while people attach a lot of negative connotations to it ignorance simply means that you do not know something yeah or you don't know as much about something and as often else. you don't know you don't know yes but without there going is into one the whole area where... known unknowns and unknown unknowns <laughs> there, is, there is one area where you see a lot of stupidity come from this is not ignorance this is stupidity because in my opinion because usually it is people who are supposed to be informed commentators journalists and sometimes even vet armed forces veterans, especially armed forces veterans, who come out and say, X nation has copied this, uh, uh, copied us. Is this a segue, mm. I sense? This is a segue, yes, because it, it, it seems to be a good time for segue. <laughs> it, it's it's and, a segue that's so much of a segue, it has two wheels and will roll you off a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> it's a case of, you know, the. Uh, uh, and I would quote even one person sent this morning, and this is a quote from actually from our own bilge pumps discussion on Twitter, our own little chat in, in the group. Russian ships just don't look Russian anymore. <laughs> Who said that? Who said that? They have such distinctive. They have such distinctive lumpy bits. Where are all those lovely lumpy bits? You know, that's what a Russian ship is. You know, They're yeah. gone. Well, um, I mean, well, I mean, the, the thing is, is like, it, 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 it's one of these things, isn't it? Of as as a certain level, a certain type of technology evolves and becomes the standard, then 
every everyone who's following that tends to trend towards it so you get this commonality of appearance um it i think it's, it's not the first time we've seen this to be perfectly honest because you know pre-dreadnoughts dreadnoughts everyone well this thing i'm thinking about so like if you actually going i was going back even further so if you go back to say the medieval period yeah, yeah an english fleet at war would be made up of cogs and hulks and that kind of northern european shipping you know sort of slightly bowl-shaped vessels with big castles on either end but a venetian war fleet would be made up of mostly galleys and a spanish war fleet would be made up of galleasses galleys and galleons depending on where, which element of their of their territories they were looking after and then and so, so it's all very visually distinct but then you get the move to the big galleons and from there you get the race-built galleons and by the time the race-built galleons and are evolving into the great ships and the early ships of the line and the first frigates you know if you look at a painting of something like the four days battle in the anglo-dutch wars if you don't if, if you don't know the fine details of the designs and or you don't look for the flags you'd be hard pressed to tell who is who um whereas if you look at a painting of the armada you can usually tell who is who and if you look at a uh, i don't know one of the northern european crusader fleet showing up in the second or third crusade you can definitely tell who is who so you have that kind of homogenization um and then through the age of sail you get that a lot to the point that i mean apart from slightly inaccurate paint schemes aside if you look at the battle of trafalgar paintings very often it's incredibly difficult to tell who is who without referencing flags but then you get the ironclad era which was the whole reason why the yeah. flags were quite so massive yeah anyone who ever complains about how big flags are on modern warships go and have a look at the ones in the early 19th century or the uh, mid to late 18th century yeah. it's fun but then when you, you you kind of you get the ironclad era and everything's suddenly very diverse again you you could show someone hms warrior and I don't know. Um, uh, the oh, Blois? no, well, was a bit Blois. of an odd one. The magenta, that um, tumble home two decker round bowed oh. French ironclad that's a few a few years after Warrior. You're never going to mistake one for the other, and that carries on throughout the ironclad era. It's like you've got HMS Devastation, but you've got USS Monitor, you've got the Italia, you've got the Cerberus, you've got Lytha little monitors hiding around in the danube you've got all sorts of ships they look completely different i mean okay fair enough ships within the same navy often look completely different as well but there, there are certain design styles like the tumble home for the french or or um or you know the the side by side funnels for the british that make for very distinct design styles and then you get into the pre-dreadnought era and everything starts to homogenize again. Okay, the French stick with the tumble home perhaps a little bit longer than is wise, but um, again, unless you know what fine details to look at, if you look at a Russian dreadnought, a Jap uh, sorry, a Russian pre-dreadnought, a Japanese pre-dreadnought, a British pre-dreadnought, an Italian pre-dreadnought, they all look pretty similar. I mean, that's because they started out from a point of ignorance, which is mm. we've got this technology. How does it at best apply? Mm. They spend a few decades discovering what the problems are and solving those problems and in more often ways. than not mm. the solution is the same yeah. 
Because then, there is one good solution. Uh, yeah. Not often that there is two or three solutions that are the same, uh, same weight of success. Yeah, and then you see that diverging again. I mean, World War One, there's a fair amount of commonality in, in ship design. World War Two, it starts to get more diverse. And then I almost said World War Three. We haven't had that quite yet. Um, the Cold War, you know, people are off doing all sorts of different things. The Americans are concentrating on big carriers and the need for escorts for those. The Russians are not concentrating on big carriers, but they're concentrating on perhaps the ability to kill big carriers. Which and it usually means lots of lumpy bits. Yeah, and the and then you've got the British through various political stupidity gradually becoming the US Navy's Atlantic anti-submarine warfare flotilla so their ships start to divert off on a completely different line of thinking and yeah as you say you've got you've got lots of lumpy bits attached to Russian ships you've got lots of missiles and weird boxes attached to American ships and random assortments of stubby looking missiles and anti-submarine warfare equipment attached to British ships but now the whole th- like everything's coalescing again as it has done multiple times in history around as you say a a solution which is basically com- shorthand is helicopter deck stealth shaping rail ra- reduce radar cross-section and vls that's right and the stealth component mm. has only one or two practical solutions and that involves angle and material mm. so you know, you need to have smooth surfaces and you need to have those surfaces angled at particular um, in particular ways to bounce whatever reflection there is in a way that's not useful to the enemy. Mm. So, um, yeah, the, the whole cause for this discussion was me um, complaining about the appearance of um, the Russian destroyer um, testing the Zircon. Mm. today it's uh i looked at it when i first saw it i thought yeah, hang on no that's that's european surely yeah well i was right russia's part of europe yeah <laughs> and yeah uh, the, the ship looks european <laughs> it uh it, it does look very like uh, you have to have the gorshkovs do look very um yeah franco italian i'd say well, that's design. that's very traditional for Russia, isn't it, to to get their styling yeah. from Italian warships? Yeah, it wouldn't and be the, the French, first time yeah. they've in, they've imported ships from the French or the Italians, except this time they're building them themselves. But I mean, yeah, it's and I, I think it, and of they, course there's the LHDs which they're building, which are honestly not Mistrals, even though we got all the information, technical details off the French for the Mistrals, and therefore, uh, but we're building them now ourselves, and these are entirely our own new idea of the LHDs. They're not Mistrals with some cosmetic changes, honestly, well, then, honestly not. You've also got things like the um, uh, the what's it? Is it the J? I hear the good things. They're made of thicker steel though than the Mistrals, which is quite a good thing. You've got things like the the um, Chinese, the J thirty or thirty five or something like that. The and then you've got this new Russian stealth jet that's been recently unveiled and a couple of I think they, I think they call it a checkmate what yeah and what then a couple of that you've got a couple <laughs> of um a couple of uh, other stealth uh sort of fifth mm. generation stealth fighter programs in in progress and they all look very suspiciously similar to the f-35 
I mean, look, there's, there's also um, no doubt. the Chinese probably nicked a bunch of F-35 design oh, data. Yes. But... Yes, I was going to say, there's, there's no doubt that, 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 that people were caught attempting to smuggle out, compo- uh, you know, designs, hmm. c- components of the F-35 in the in past uh, couple of decades. There's no doubt that that has happened. Um, but, you know, you need only look at the um, F-31 um, to see that, well, actually, hang on. It's a twin-engined aircraft. It's not single-engined like the F-35. Um, mm. uh, and sure, the nose looks an awful lot like the F-35 and maybe the engine intakes. But then again, so does the Tempest. Does that mean the Tempest was stolen from the F-35? Yeah, and and, as, and there's no indication that the Russians um, have have got their hands on F-30, the F-35 specs, but the, this new under wraps under tarpaulin wraps uh single engine one they've they've trotted out for then their air display this later this week i think it is which you know again it looks very similar to an f-35 but again it's, if, it's what was it, it the, looks the boeing, more similar the boeing, to the boeing yeah. version of the f-35 let's be honest it does look it's, more similar to the boeing version of the f-35 hmm. it looks like it's got that big mouth that gaping intake, mouth yeah. air intake but all, all of these, all of these, you know, stealth fighters, even the Su-57, uh, the one we know a bit more about, all these stealth fighters look much of a muchness, to be honest. I mean, okay, fair enough. I'm not the world. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in aviation, but I'm not an aviation historian. So there's probably that's probably set some aviation enthusiasts screaming about all the differences that are fairly obvious between an F-22 and F-35 and Su-57 and so forth. And to be fair, the Chinese, the Chinese J-20 is pretty different but you have the angles of the fins you have various intake angling it all depends on what kind of frequency of radar they're focusing in on and before anyone starts saying alex you're a naval astronomer how do you notice i work with aero engineers as one of the teams i work with at kingston okay and you know carriers uh, I, I do get carry aircraft as well they do yes. so but but you know it, it, again it's a similar kind of thing of not everyone is copying from the same exactly the same design but they are all working towards a similar solution which is leading to similar it's, outcomes. It's, it's not just working towards it; they're also being forced towards that solution mm. because that is the solution. The solution. Yeah. Now yeah, yeah yeah you can have varying degrees of interpretation and mixing and matching as you say. Uh, um, priorities for your own specific circumstances as to whether you want to go for a different, you know, greater resistance or a different band of radar might re- involve a slightly different leading edge or, or something along those mm-hmm. lines. But, um, yeah, just the arrow. Mm-hmm. All arrows look the same. Okay, you've got a bodkin point and you've got various other arrows with different roles, but each role has a pretty specific arrow around the world now because that's what works the best. Yeah, mm. See, you, you, you almost had me there because as a, as a medieval re- reenactor who specializes in archery, I was about to go, no, there are so many different arrows and the yes. differences are so obvious. And then I caught myself going, yeah, that's exactly what I've just been saying. It's like to, to <laughs> someone who's not as deeply embedded in it as me. Yes. Yeah, actually, they do all look pretty similar. That, that, well, they, and, they do. They look similar. But, but, but what I was actually saying was, is that they're for, for each of their roles, they've mm. all become the same. So a fishing arrow, no matter where you are, tends to have that multiple barb effect. Mm. You know, your the, the 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 standard you know flesh piercing arrow has pretty much the same sort of shape, whether it's a a stone age 
chip of um, obsidian or a modern carbon composite, you know, because that's what the best design is. So it's not that the modern carbon composite is copying the poor bloke from the Stone Age. It's that the Stone Age guy got it right because that's what is right, mm. <laughs> you know. Um, but then again, of course, you have different roles, different perspective, uh, different um, objectives, different priorities. So you come up with a bodkin point or you yeah. come up with any other number of varieties. But your opponent thinking, oh, I need to penetrate that armor would come up with something that looks very similar to your bodkin point. Mm. Yeah. Not because but I copy this... you, but because the alternatives don't work. Now, this then leads us nicely into something where the alternatives really don't work, and that is the Virginia class. Oh, come on. For God, goodness sake, seriously. Well, what's they your alternative? What's your alternative? That is a hump in the middle. <laughs> okay, so they stretched it a bit. I mean, that, that's you know, aren't they, they didn't planning on doing that? They They literally cut the design down the middle, put the, and put a new section in the middle. They basically went, oh, fit. do we do we have something which basically looks like the ballistic missile, uh, you know, <laughs> section from the, the from the SSBNs? Yeah, we'll shove that in. All right, but why? Because well, the Ohio clearly represents SSGNs are going out of service, and they need more. They need more tactical attack capability in their submarine fleet, and they're not going to build an SSGN class, and they're not going to convert any of the other Ohio's apparently. So it's it's not as though they uh, have found a new role for a submarine that needs a new way of thinking, such as deploying large underwater vessels or um, launching, um, you know, carrier kill killer missiles against Chinese carriers. Not really. They're, they have gone for, uh, uh, let, let's be honest, the SSGN has been around for a long time. The Russians have had several generations of them. The Americans got into it by converting uh, some of the original Ohio's as part of the uh, the arms of nation treaties, they basically said, right, we're retiring these old Ohio's. They've still got years of service life in their life. We'll convert them to SSGNs. Um, and that means they're armed with cruise missiles instead of ballistic missiles, and usually those are conventional warheads. He says usually those are conventional warheads. Only very, very stupid nations would stick a non-conventional warhead in a pile of conventional warheads, which might be actually be used. Because accidents happen even on very large and very expensive submarines. So, okay, they've got that capability, and it's a really, really good capability. They don't want to lose it, especially not with the South China Sea and the various issues you have with the islands and China's ballistic uh, uh, anti-ship missile systems. I'm not quite... I consider the anti-ship ballistic missiles a bit of a white elephant, as you know, myself, because I think if you launch... The moment you launch them... No one's going to know if you're launching an anti-ship ballistic missile or a anti uh, or a or a intercontinental ballistic missile for quite a long time. And if you're launching enough to hit, it's going to look like an attack. So you're going to end up with getting that sort of level of response. So you're not going to really be able to use them. They are a threat, which is quite useful in peacetime as something to state you have and look big and powerful. But actually, using them wartime carries too many risk consequences. But the 
whole point of the SSGNs was they could get into the South China Sea, get into these places and launch an attack. The thing is, though, the SSGNs in terms of American service are higher class SSBNs converted. They are big, but they are really, really quiet. And they make sense. What the Americans are talking about replacing them is with a version of the Virginia class, which is an extended Virginia class submarine. They've taken an SSN, which is not as quiet as an SSBN, and they have made it longer, less maneuverable, and noisier because they've given it a humpback. And I'm sorry, people are going to go, but it's been, they've done all sorts of testing and all this stuff. Guarantee you that hump is going to create disturbance in the water especially as they've got the sail and then they've got a nice a, a, a normal length a normal height deck and then they have the hump it's you know the thing i i, I would probably accept it is if they'd move the sail back and then put the hump right behind the sail so they had the sail to act as a, as a thing to clear the water in front of the hump that would have made sense to me but they've done the bare minimum to make this submarine capable of taking those missiles I must say, though, but this may be something of me just being slightly silly and juvenile, but long sub is long. <laughs> Looks like a torpedo. But, but yeah, look, I, you know, the, the thing is, it's got four very large vertical launch tubes. OK, so each of True. these tubes is supposedly capable of carrying two Tomahawk land attack missiles mm. or a um, hypersonic live launch vehicle mm. now yeah you know, these is these are the shape of things to come um I, now i, I agree you, they're the shape of things to come i disagree now, do with you, the way do, they've do done you, them on this submarine do you delay integrating the shape of things to come for another 10 years while you design from scratch a new submarine which is a long and convoluted process as you know or do you get a taste of what is to come by putting them on something that you're more familiar with? So, you, so yeah, the difference, I'm sure once again, we can look at historical um, comparisons here. Um, you had to muck around with flight decks to figure out what was the best flight deck configuration. You had to muck around with the position of um, twin uh, turret weapons on your dreadnoughts before you got your super firing configurations. Um, it, but you didn't want to wait until you solved those problems before you started building your ships because you needed those ships for strategic imperatives at that particular time. So Virginia Block 5 has got the capability of operating hypersonic live vehicles, TLAM attack cruise missiles, which you know aren't exactly easy to fit on um, submarines and ships, and it's also got the ability to ha operate very large um, underwater um, autonomous vehicles. So these are all the things that we keep talking about why mm. Australia's future submarines are next to being obsolete even before they, uh, the steel is cut to build them because they just got relatively standard torpedo tubes horizontally placed up the front, aka World War One, you know, A-class. My, my my only real reservation about this is, you know, the the block they're putting in 
yeah. is increasing their length by about just over 20%. That's a lot mm-hmm. for any more ship. More than 20% to me. Yeah. Well, they're, they're 150 um, meters long, um, the, 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 the regular Virginias, and they're talking about adding 25 meters. So it's not quite 25%, right. but more than 20. And they're replacing SSGNs, might I remind you, which carry 154 Tomahawk cruise missiles. Not Although, yes, but they, they can't carry the hypersonic glide vehicles that we're looking at here, though. They could, but they're nearly 40 years old, so no one's going to doubt them because they've converted ballistic missile submarines, so they have ballistic missile tubes. My my my, my concern, yeah, my, my main my main concern at the, with this is, you know, if you add that much to the length of a sub of a hull that has already been designed for a certain mixture of speed and maneuverability, etc. I'm not seeing these uh, these long subs being anything close to as maneuverable as the previous blocks of Virginia's. And whilst that might not be a problem for if they're acting as a micro SSGN, they are being advertised as saying, yet it will not take away from this otherwise flexible anti-ship, anti-sub intel and special forces platform, i.e. they're still going to be expecting these block fives to at least according to this article, to be doing the fast attack, sneaky, sneaky role that the, their sister ships are going to be doing, which could be something of a problem because, yes. yeah. I, I think it's quite clear that this can't be your traditional attack sub. No. no. Um, I, I, this, this, this has to be a SSG. Hmm. If it, if, if it was me, yeah, if it was me doing this, as you say, you want a kind of experimental technology. I personally would have gone about it one of two ways. Either put these things in instead of the existing VLS tubes in a, in a, in a Virginia hull, which would basically create a similar warship, but with a different type of launch capability, um, which then acts as your prototype or test bed. Or, you know, yeah, okay, the Ohio and the other SSGN conversions are getting a bit long in the tooth. So maybe you don't want to reconvert those. But, you know, the Ohio class had a fairly good run and they are supposed to be bringing the Columbia class in. So why, if 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 it's a proof of concept, replace the VLS cells on an existing Virginia without making this long sub. If, it, if they're wanting to actually replace the Ohio straight off, then um, take in some of the newer Ohios, and who are, which I are would, slightly younger, because then they'll be able to carry more because they are dedicated to, to do that. Though they would have to reduce their nuclear um, deterrent, though, wouldn't they? But that's what the Columbia class is all about. Yeah, but you've got, to, you've got to transition. You've got to. You, you can't just. I would yeah. imagine that you, you'd need to have a certain number of ships at sea boats at sea um at any one time if you start mucking around with um what ships are where and uh, what they're f- used for then it might become rather hard to transition to the columbias and keep your um deterrent um, constantly available just well, correct something we said earlier they can actually take the 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 each one can take either two hypersonic glide vehicles mm. or mm. seven tomahawks oh, so they can carry okay. 28 or eight Hmm. My, my uh, they also have this. 12 more t- they also have 12 vls forward which can carry more tomahawks so they can carry 30 missiles and you see they go my, my, yeah. bad. 
Yeah. Mark, I, was Mark, looking at, I was just looking at the graphic, and uh, yeah. there was a visual representation, not an accurate account. But, but, yeah. but what, what I would say in regards to timing is, you know, you've got at the moment, at least what from what's available publicly, the last Virginia class that's been laid down is the Block 4 USS Idaho SSN 799. They've still got Arkansas and Utah, which is 800 as the Block 4, which have not yet been, well, they're marked as under construction, but in uh, there isn't a laydown date for them. No. Whereas the Columbia class, um, USS Columbia herself, SSBN 826, was laid down in October last year. So unless, and Wisconsin, the next one hasn't yet been laid down, but in theory, the first Columbia class, and looking at this, given that they've got to lay down at least two more Virginias before they get to Oklahoma, SSN 802, which is the first Block 5, as, even assuming that Oklahoma is going to be the first of the Block 5s to carry and to carry this system, um, you're probably going to have the first Columbias in service before the first Block 5 um, Virginias, which would There's mean... You could be pulling Ohio's out in order to, you know, to refit them to a much larger SSGN standard, and you'd still get the Columbia's in before. There is one other option here, Mm. yeah, and that is that this is complete bullshit what we're looking at, and that (laughs) the space is actually taken up for some other purpose. Mm, This is possible also because it, yeah, it doesn't because on the surface as you say it doesn't make a, enough sense does it to no it really doesn't well, and it, to, to, it, to, to an ignorant armchair admiral such as myself who classifies himself as stupid in such arenas um it uh doesn't look like it makes much sense and i'm happy to be um it looks to me like someone's gone with a hang on we've got to do this and they're having a impulse reaction we've got these under design okay we'll just insert a module we'll just insert a module because that's worked so well for the u.s navy in the past (laughs) because this is also the u.s navy does have form of doing this of just inserting a module we've got this Mm. problem coming up we'll just insert a module and that's the other thing if i'd been in the nicest way i would have if i'd been the americans i'd have gone right we're building the Columbia class anyway. I would have just left the Block 5 because also this is going to add a lot of complexity onto the Block 5 and probably slow down the production of SSNs when they really want SSNs out. I'd be tempted to go, uh, well, what we'll do for the first eight Columbia class vessels, every second one will actually come out as an SSGN. We'll build four more Columbias. And we'll turn them into it because let's be honest, they've already got the huge tubes. They've already got the huge space. They yeah. could far easily, far more easily carry those facilities and take on that role. And that gives you a like for like replacement. Because I mean, it's, I don't know. Maybe they've maybe they've gone for the same, you know, design procurement process that the Australians have. And, you know, just, yeah, yeah. It's good on it. See what looks good on a piece of paper on a napkin, and um, my, my my only other concern on a napkin ha- did it have that did did it have that hump? Well, I say my my only other concern thinking about it, to be honest, is um, it, it's almost it's almost uh, too many eggs in one basket. 
um, yeah, scenario for me because you you know the, one of the reason one of the reasons you have your SSBNs separate from your SSNs as opposed to some you remember probably remember some of the Cold War proposals where you had kind of SSNs that happened to have a four pack or a six pack of, of nuclear missiles sitting behind the sail. Part of the reason you there's that split is because the uh, the the ballistic missile subs are part of your strategic deterrent, and your attack subs, well, job sort of job titles in the name. If you send your SSNs forward or even your SSKs forward, you're accepting a certain level of risk in that you may lose some. But then, if you also happen to have some of your strategic deterrent aboard, then is the loss of or an attack on one of those subs is that an attack on your strategic deterrent or is that just an attack on an attack sub that happens to be carrying some of your strategic deterrent incidentally and the responses to those two things are going to be very very different it's the same like the u.s navy would react very differently to like the uss coal bombing as opposed to if somebody had deliberately sought out one of their ohio's while it was doing a surface transit and done the same thing to to that so although they're not but i, I guess this, on, sorry. This, this this represents that problem we have now though with the whole inter intermediate ballistic missiles that is a hypersonic missile nuclear or not well at the moment they are proliferating as non as battlefield tactical weapons not as mm. nuclear weapons but yeah it's not easy to tell the difference obviously and um, to be honest that's that, that's and it's but it's a know, problem that, this, an mirv is a hypersonic glide vehicle of course it is but that's that's why i said whether it's a warhead or not you can't tell the difference but the point is is that the chinese and the and the russians are already building these the zircon that was tested today mm. could have been fitted easily with a nuclear warhead as much as it was with a conventional way i would imagine um, these ones on the Virginia Block 5s, well, I guess if they, the, the raw intention is for them to be conventional, then it's an SSGN. It's not mm. a strategic asset. Um, but, of course, as you say, the temptation will always be there that, well, hang on, this could actually be part of our deterrent, mm. which muddies the scenario so significantly. Yeah. And, I mean, and I mean, even, even stepping back from the nuclear well, deterrent, deterrent aspect of things um you know even if you look at it from a representation of this represents a good uh, like a decent chunk of the intheata land attack capability or anti-shipping attack capability if they're also going to be using it as an ssn uh, in a more conventional attack role which they might have to because you know it uh, shades of star trek it might be the only ship in the sector um which is highly likely yeah then you you're potentially potentially putting at risk a very potent platform that you might want to take a chunk out of say a chinese carrier battle group you might end, end up risking losing that in combat with even something as low grade as a kilo if 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 you happen to need some you need something to go and in that and deal, thing with, deal that with pump is going to be noisy yeah, you need something to go in and deal with those with some an annoying Chinese attack submarines before they get out to potentially threaten your carrier groups. This is the only ship in the area. You send it out. It tries to do its job, fires off a few Mark 48s. Oh, no, there was a particularly cunning Chinese commander who, who wedged his kilo into the seabed and pretended to be in a very interesting rock formation, puts a torpedo into it, 
now all of a sudden you're down the majority of your hypersonic anti-shipping strike missiles in that area and oh look there's a chinese carrier group heading this way which okay you might still have the capabilities to deal with but you probably would take less casualties and have been a lot happier if you could have dealt with it by just lobbing a bunch of hypersonics at it before it started sending fighters and its own missiles your way um whereas you know the people who pioneered the ssgn the russians you know they have the oscars they keep them separate from their attack subs they keep them separate from their ballistic missile subs and up until now the u.s navy has done the same thing although they share a common hull the ohio ssgns aren't or SS, yeah, SSGNs are not used as attack subs, and they also don't carry the various Ohio's, they don't carry a mixed Tomahawk and um, ballistic missile load. So, uh, admittedly, Tomahawks yeah. can carry nuclear warheads as well, but they can do, but know, compared to a ballistic missile sub, they're uh, somewhat, somewhat of a lower grade threat because you have to get a little bit closer to use them. But, mm. you know, it's yeah, I'm I can understand the. I can understand what they're trying to get at if they're doing this. I'm not necessarily sure this is the best way to do it, though. I have complete faith it is not the best way to do it, because I know I keep laboring this point, so I'm sounding like a broken record, but bear with me on this. We have spent how many years designing submarines and going for them to be as smooth and as efficient in the water as possible to make as little noise as possible that's been the purpose of submarine development for ever as far as anyone can be concerned and suddenly you've got the u.s navy turn around going you know what you know we spent all those years doing research we're going to completely ignore it and we're going to design a system now which is going to actually have a hump in it because despite the fact that we many years ago actually used the existence of a hump on a style of one particular submarine to justify getting rid of it so we could replace it with another submarine we're now going to do it because this is and i hate to say this the only option i can consider is this is the cost effective solution or rather the politically cost effective solution because a speed effective solution if you want them now this might be the fastest way of getting them well, mm. as I said, there's the Columbias. They're in production. These aren't even in production yet. The Columbias are in production. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Look, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. You talk about you talk about lumps. Perhaps lumps aren't as important anymore because look all the, look at all the new subs coming out. They've got all these lumpy passive sonar arrays stuck on the outsides. You know these great big blocky things. They're not that size of that lump. Well, yeah, but still, it would do this, fair, have a similar uh, effect. The, you know, those those big blocky um, sonar blocks on the side of subs these days—they stick out. They're angular. They're flat. They're they are a break in the um, the, the fish shape form. And, and, and you, I mean, to be fair, everyone does design their subs slightly differently. Mm-hmm. The Russians have a different sub design profile to the Astutes, which are different to the Americans, which are different to the French etc etc um but yeah i i i still come down to possibly potentially trying to do too many things in, in in one because i mean i can i can see an argument for an ssgn based on a virginia class hull but if they're going to do that and if they're absolutely insisting they want this extra unit in there 
then sort of returning to what I was saying earlier about potentially repurposing the existing VLS launching section of the sub or moving things around within it, you know, use the whole lot, like double up on it or or however many you can fit in that section. So if you're if you're going to do a proper SSGN replacement for the old uh, older Ohio hulls, you know, commit to it. Um, ha- have have some of the Virginia Block fours as pure SSGN subs that happen to also carry some torpedoes, so they can defend themselves, rather than trying to make them also attack subs. I think that be, I, I would almost. I would have to say I would find that more acceptable, and I'd also find it more acceptable if they sort of continued the whole shape the whole way along. Because if you, I went and looked at the astute class, because I knew someone, when so whenever I bring up about such ships being lumpy, I know someone's going to bring up about the astute class because they do have a bit of a lump at the end, but it's filtered into the whole ship, and it's therefore it's a smooth continuous hull. It's not just a sudden bump. I, I um, like to say the astute class were designed for 1980s computers. They have a really nice low polygon count. Yes, they do. <laughs> they have a really, really nice low polygon count. Um, but the, the the thing is, I'm looking at this and I'm sort of going, well, it's not really enough, even if it does carry a full load of 30 tomahawks, to equate you to, to a single Ohio class as a GM turning up, you need five. Now, you can say, well, that's all your eggs in one basket. But the thing is, are you really going to get five of these Block 5 Virginias to turn up in one place? Mm, who knows? Maybe, 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 as Jamie says, maybe, maybe this will be an experimental run of one or two, and then they'll decide to do something proper. Uh, well, with the rest of the this, class. They have ordered two, four, six... 10 in this yeah. run although SSGN, only although, ssn 802 to ssn 811 although um, only the, only materials have been gathered for only the first two yeah so or, and what's worrying me is they're still being called ssn's not ssgn's hmm. the ohio's had their whole numbers changed to ssgn's they became ssgn 726 to 729 these are listed as ssn's and it's a case of they're going to be treated therefore as ssn's and it's kind oh, of like oh. battle cruisers. And I got into this conversation the other day, people, because I said, well, one of the other ideas which was considered when they were naming battle cruisers was actually to use the name frigate for them. It wasn't gone with at all, as you know, Jackie Fisher basically laughed it out of the room. But imagine how the world would have been different if the battle cruisers had been called frigates rather than battle cruisers. Imagine how they perceived. Would they have ended up being as used in the battle line? Would they have been treated differently? Would Beatty have approached his force differently if his ships had been called frigates rather than battle cruisers? Because it would definitely embed in his mind that they are not line warships, that they are scouting ships. Yeah. yeah. And this is the point. If you have things which are, let's be honest, they've got a bump, which is going to give them all the disadvantages of being an SSGN, but you're calling them an SSN, what are you going to end up with them? Mm. Yeah, well, I guess it's a matter of watch this space because, um, yeah, like I say, it's provisional. Uh, look at the submarine based on open source material by a very uh, 
strong source, covert shores. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's preliminary and it's provisional. So yes. it may yet be that what we see is something very different to that. And I'm kind of hoping that it will be. Because <laughs> if not, yeah, mm. it's uh, it, it just, it, to be honest, it looks like a battle cruiser in terms mm. of the concept. It's not ideal at any of its jobs, mm. but it looks good. It looks big. Well, again, the, the battle cruiser I think would have looked a lot better at its jobs if you'd called it a frigate, because then you'd have known exactly what it was for, and it could have done that job. Someone would have called it a battle frigate at some point, though. Yeah, which would just be amusing. Yeah, that, that that would have been fun. <laughs> or a heavy frigate. We'd have had return of the heavy frigates and the super heavy frigates. Can you imagine what the naming conventions these days would be? We, 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 if we if we if frigate had taken the place of battle cruiser, we'd literally just be left with destroyer. Everything's a destroyer. No sloop. No, we've still got sloops. There's tiny. And there'd be swans. no there'd be nothing from corvette corvette and sloop size to destroyer. So you just have the type twenty three destroyer, the type forty five destroyer, the type eighty three destroyer, the Arlie Burke destroyer. The they might have brought back Briggs. All, all, all the more F-57. reason to go with the all the more reason to go with the VLS two braking system. Mm. Yeah, VLS tube systems be best. Yeah. So, right, and this I is a, that's and that's what this is. This is a, according to the VLS rating system, mm. this rates pretty high. Yeah, once you account for tomahawks, it's a thirty VLS. So it's fifth rate. But yeah. tomahawks are a different league. Mm. To <laughs> the, um, this is true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a, well, actually, given them it's American, that's actually relatively appropriate. It's kind of like the American uh, six frigates. <laughs> they, they notionally carry a similar level level of guns to a to a heavy fifth rate or a small fourth rate in that case. But the guns they themselves are also heavier guns. Mm-hmm. The, the tomahawk, the tomahawk, therefore, is the equivalent of the thirty-two pounder carronade or the twenty-four long twenty-four pounder long gun. Which leads terms. rise to one of my favourite myths of all time, which is that the Razé comes mm. about as a result of the War of 1812. And that's what causes the Royal Navy to start Razéing things. And I'm sort of going, have you seen the Sovereign of the Seas? They were Razéing ships for a lot longer. Than well, <laughs> let's, let's introduce them to Captain Edward Pellew. Oh, yes. Somewhat predates the War of 1812. Yes. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, I think that's that is two it. hours. Yep. Yes. Yeah. I'm not sure how long that is recorded, but it's two hours. <laughs> well, we've been yeah. in the call for two hours. I think the recording's one thirty-eight, so it's probably about one thirty-five okay. worth of okay. uh, content. Right. Won't offend our listeners. Yeah. No. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope you enjoyed. Yep, bye bye. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off.